0: Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I'm recording this podcast on Saturday, September 8th, the Feast of the Birth of the Virgin Mary. I just returned from Saturday morning Mass, and it got me to thinking more deeply about Mary. There is nothing in Scripture about Mary's birth. The first mention of it is in the early 2nd century Proto-Evangelium of James, where we read that Mary's father, Joachim, was a wealthy man and her mother, Anna, was barren. It's a very similar story to that of Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, in 1 Samuel. As Hannah pleads with God to give her a son, so anna pleads with god to give her a child a boy or a girl to take away her disgrace as hannah offers to dedicate her son to god so anna offers to dedicate her child to god as hannah gave birth to samuel so anna gives birth to mary and as hannah dedicates samuel to god on his third birthday so anna dedicates Mary to God on her third birthday. Both Samuel and Mary then live in the presence of God. Samuel in the tabernacle, Mary in the temple. When Mary is 12 years old, Joseph, an elderly widower with children of his own, is chosen by Lot to marry Mary and to take care of her, carefully guarding her virginity it's really a delightful story especially in how joseph is chosen all the widowers in the land are brought together at the temple in jerusalem each carrying his own walking stick the sticks are then gathered up by the high priest who prays over them and then returns them to their owners when joseph receives his stick a dove miraculously flies out of it flits about and then lands on Joseph's head. He is the one chosen to protect and care for the young Virgin Mary. The symbolism is wonderful. As Moses' brother Aaron's walking stick blossoms and sprouts almonds in number 17, so Joseph's walking stick blossoms and sprouts a dove, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who then descends upon and overshadows Mary, enabling her to conceive Jesus. I love that story. Well, a few years ago, I was in Italy and I visited the Scrovegni Chapel in Padua. A small chapel, very small chapel, dates from 1305, and it contains an extraordinary fresco cycle by Giotto. The frescoes illustrate the lives of both Jesus and Mary, and they cover the entire interior of the chapel. The birth of Mary is on the upper tier of the North wall. If you've not seen the Scrovegni Chapel, definitely put it on your bucket list. Google it. Have a look at the frescoes. They are absolutely wonderful. Anyway, Back to our story. We left Mary last week at the foot of the cross, and we pick up our story there with John 19, 25 to 27. And I read to you. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now notice, those at the foot of the cross were Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, Salome, John's and James' mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and she's only mentioned here in Scripture one time. Clopas, or Cleopas, may have been a brother of Joseph, Mary's husband and Jesus' father. And, of course, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw Mary and his cousin John at the foot of the cross, Jesus put John into the care of his mother Mary, and Mary into the care of John. That's an important moment in defining the role of Mary in the Church and in our lives. Although Joseph, if he were a widower, may well have had other children by his deceased first wife, that would be the brothers of the Lord, and if Mary remained a virgin throughout her life, then Jesus' cousin John would have been a very close blood relative of Jesus. And we certainly learn from Scripture that both John and his brother James were in Jesus' innermost circle, the circle of Peter, James, and John. Of the three, John was the beloved disciple, the one who at the Last Supper sat on Jesus' left and fell asleep with his head on Jesus' shoulder. It would make sense then that Jesus would place his mother under the care of John and John under the care of his mother. From that moment, Mary and John are forever joined. Now, St. Paul founded the church at Ephesus on his third missionary journey, AD 54-57. But tradition holds that later, sometime after AD 64 or so, the apostle John became the leader of the church in Ephesus. Tradition also holds that Mary traveled with John to Ephesus and that she spent her last years there living in a little house perched high atop Mount Carissos, about five miles from the archaeological site of Ephesus in Kusadasi, Turkey. We've visited the House of Mary in Ephesus many times, and we've celebrated Mass there on many occasions. Although a traditional site, it's a wonderful place to remember Mary and John and to ponder the events that brought them together and that may have brought them to that little house. Join me next time on our Footsteps of Paul teaching tour, and I'll take you there. But back to the cross. I read to you now from John nineteen, thirty-one to 37. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it, that would be our John, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened, So that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. We can only imagine Mary's profound sorrow when they take Jesus' dead body down from the cross. It's a scene captured in countless works of art, but never so well as a Michelangelo's Pieta, a work truly unprecedented in Italian sculpture. Carved from a single block of Carrara marble, Michelangelo completed it in less than two years. And he was only 24 years old. Amazing. Makes you feel like a piker, doesn't it? In other works of art, I've always found Botticelli's Lamentation Over the Dead Christ, a tempera on panel from 1492, to be the most moving scene of Jesus being placed in the tomb. It's in the Alte Pinakothek in Munich. In it, Christ's lifeless body is draped over Mary's lap, a reverse image of Michelangelo's Pieta. With Jesus' head to our right and his feet to our left. As Mary, dressed in a black gown, holds her son, she has fainted, swooned, her head lolling to our left, and her arms and hands hanging lifeless, as if she had died with him. The Apostle John stands behind Mary, his left hand beneath her right arm, his hand clutching Jesus' left hip keeping him from slipping off Mary's lap. In the foreground, kneeling to the right, Mary Magdalene, dressed in blue with a red cape, embraces Jesus, cradling his head ever so gently in her hands and kissing him on the cheek. The darkened tomb looms in the background. The scene is utterly heartbreaking. We cannot comprehend Mary's grief and pain on placing her son in that tomb. But then we turn over to chapter 20 at verses one through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, again, that would be John, and said, they they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the temple. Both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over. And he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up all by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, you know, the one who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw, and believed. Now, parenthetically, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So we have the famous foot race between Peter and John. John is writing the gospel, and he cannot help but tell us three times that he beat Peter to that tomb. Well, we continue. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, that is, Mary Magdalene. She wept. As she bent over to look into the tomb, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. "I, I don't know where they've put him. She believed someone had stolen the body. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And then Jesus said, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, their native language, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. Don't cling to me. I've not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. Oh, she ran. And she said, I- I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene must have told Jesus' mother what she had just witnessed. Now pause for a moment and and try to imagine Mary's response. Shock. Disbelief. Awe. And wonder. On the evening of that first day of the week, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, although it's not mentioned in the story, Mary, Jesus' mother, must have been present in that upper room. Later, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, after Jesus' ascension, we read that they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, that would be the women who were at the foot of the cross, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. After the momentous events of Holy Week, of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, Jesus' most intimate followers must have been inseparable. They shared an extraordinary experience together. Well, Mary, Jesus' mother, drops out of our story here. But if tradition is correct, and it certainly seems so to me, Mary stayed with the apostles throughout. She was to care for John, and John was to care for her. In light of their shared post-resurrection experience, it's inconceivable to me that Mary would have simply faded into the background and gone away. So what was Mary's role? One of the things that I dearly love about our Roman Catholic Church is that our understanding of God, our understanding of Christ, and of our relationship with Him is not frozen in time like a museum piece. Rather, it's an ongoing process. Scripture gives us a firm foundation upon which to build. But the ongoing experience of the family of God, guided and nurtured by the Holy Spirit, takes us into a much deeper understanding. The process, admittedly, is fraught with debate, controversy, false trails, but the trajectory of the church over time reveals marvelous truths. Our understanding of Mary's role in the plan of salvation in the church and in our individual lives unfolds over nearly 2,000 years years. At the Council of Ephesus in AD 431, the church settled one of the big controversies of the early days, the Nestorian controversy, by proclaiming that Jesus is the mother of God. And let me read part of that proclamation to you. Jesus was not first born of the holy virgin as an ordinary man in such a way that the word only afterward descended upon him rather he was united humanity and divinity in the womb itself and thus it is said to have undergone a birth according to the flesh for this reason we have boldly proclaimed the holy virgin Mother of God. If Jesus is God and fleshed, as we read in the Gospel according to John in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. So if Jesus was God, Mary giving birth to him, she becomes the Mother of God in that sense and once understood as the mother of God, the next step in our understanding of Mary was voiced at the First Lateran Council in A.D. 649, affirming the perpetual virginity of Mary. I read to you that statement. The Holy Fathers acknowledge the holy and ever-virgin and immaculate Mary as really and truly the mother of God, inasmuch as she, in the fullness of time and without seed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God the Word himself, who before all time was born of God the Father, and without loss of integrity, brought him forth, and after his birth, preserved her virginity inviolate. In AD 681, the Sixth sixth Ecumenical Council held at Constantinople accepted the Lateran Council statement on Mary's perpetual virginity without question. The third stage of our understanding of Mary involved her immaculate conception. That is, that Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin. Now, that was a hotly debated topic for centuries because it's clear, as St. Paul wrote in Romans 3 at verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It wasn't until the brilliant scholar Duns Scotus, who lived from 1264 to 1308, stepped onto the scene. Recognizing the reality of original sin, Scotus argued that only Christ's sacrifice on the cross remitted our sin, but it was entirely within the purview of God, who stands outside of time, to remove the stain of original sin from Mary as a prevenient mediator prior to her conception in order that Christ have a proper and fitting mother to bear him. Now, that might sound like scholastic quibbling but it turned the tide. On December 8, 1854, after two commissions had studied the question for six years, Pope Pius IX defined the Immaculate Conception of Mary as a dogma of faith. He wrote, To the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, to the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother, To the exaltation of the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Blessed Virgin Mary, at the first instant of her conception, by a singular privilege and grace of the omnipotent God, in consideration of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, has been revealed by God, and is therefore to be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. And then, on November 1st, 1950, Pope Pius XII closed the final chapter of our understanding of Mary when he declared... The Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. Well, that brings us to the end of the fourth podcast in our series on Mary. But I'd like to add a personal note. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the 1950s and early 60s, and I grew up Presbyterian. My father was an elder in the church, my mother was a deacon. Every Sunday we got up early in the morning, having polished our shoes the night before. We put on our little suits with the clip-on ties, and we walked up the street to church. We went to Sunday school, and then after Sunday school, we all went to church together. My mother sang in the choir. Uh, my father, my grandmother sat with us. <laughs> I always sat between my father and grandmother because, well, I was a little wiggly and uncontrollable. And when I got, well, when I began to wiggle around too much or make a fuss, my grandmother would reach over and pinch me, well, and give me a chiclet to chew on. But that's the way we grew up, and mary was not part of the presbyterian faith oh we read about her we read the christmas story Uh, someone portrayed her in, in the in the nativity play every year but she was not a big feature of the presbyterian church when i left home at 18 years old and went off to the marine corps 1966 to 72 the vietnam era you know i had a lot of experiences that brought big questions into my life. I started college as a 24-year-old freshman at Arizona State University, and I had a lot of questions I wanted to find answers for, and I became a double English and philosophy major, and I began to explore those questions. Thanks to my friend, teacher, and mentor, Dr. Jack Evans, I became a Roman Catholic at 27 years old. Jack never proselytized. He never tried to convert me. But it was the example of Jack's life that really brought me to the church, that and the reading that I was doing and the classes I was taking. So I became a Roman Catholic at 27. And all the way up until recently, Mary never really played a very big part in my life. You know, I went to Mass every day, every Sunday for sure, and every day during the week mostly. I began teaching Scripture. Gosh, I've been doing that for nearly 30 years now. But Mary was never a big part of my life. Until a few years ago, I and a group of my students decided to walk the Camino de Santiago. We began by flying into Lisbon and traveling to Fatima, Portugal. I didn't particularly want to go to Fatima, but others in my group did, so we put it on the itinerary, and there we were in Fatima. We checked into a little hotel, had dinner, and I went to the concierge after dinner and said, could you tell me where the church is? And he said, well, walk out the front door, turn right, walk down a couple blocks, you can't miss it. I expected a small church, maybe even a basilica. But I was astounded. The plaza of the church at Fatima is twice the size of the plaza at Vatican Square. It's gigantic and it was late at night and every night there's a rosary procession at Fatima. Well, as I walked down the street, sure enough, you couldn't miss it, there were tens of thousands of people all carrying candles in procession around the plaza praying the rosary i had never experienced anything like it later i was invited to be one of the four people to carry the statue of mary on a float-like device leading the procession well then we walked the Camino de Santiago. What a prelude to a profound spiritual experience. After that, after the Vista Fatima, after the Camino de Santiago, I really, I really got it. I really understood. And I have to say that even today, I'm not real big on Mary and devotions, but Mary is very much a part of my spiritual life. I feel a connection to her. My own mother died when she was 47 years old. And Mary, in a very real way, has become my mother as well. I turn to her, I talk to her, I pray. It's a very intimate connection, one that, well, is part of a developing ongoing spiritual life that I hope continues for a very long time. Anyhow, that's our four-part series on Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of the church, and Mary, the mother of us all. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed making the series. So I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you during the week, and see you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.